Great to see you all this evening. Um, I was talking with someone just before I came up, and she said, are you, are you going to listen to the debates tonight? Because I was wondering on my way over how many people would actually be here tonight with the debates happening. Uh, and I said to her, yeah, no. Um, I tend to not take stimulants that close to bedtime. Uh, and I would urge any of you who are considering to consider that if you want to get a good night's sleep. Um, so a couple of things. Um, I've noticed the last few times I've been here, and I've, I don't really talk about this except in the courses that I teach because I've got people for a while that way. But there's something that's, that's a bit prevalent in Vipassana circles. Uh, I've come to affectionately call it the Vipassana slouch. It looks like this. So you can see that this, this is not a stable sitting posture that you can maintain for any length of time. So if you're going to use a zafu, if you're going to use a cushion, you want to sit out on the front third of the cushion. And that allows the knees to get down on the zabuton. That's what gives you both the stability, it's a triangulation, and gives you a really stable seat. Okay? It also tilts the pelvis forward just a bit, which gives a natural support and a natural curve to the spine. Energetically, whenever someone sits this way, it affects the mind and the body. Over time, what happens is what's called acquiring a seat. It's not something that happens overnight. It's something that happens over time, where the body actually learns to sit in this way with relaxation and stability. The head just slightly tucked, and the hands can be on the legs or in the lap. Okay. This is if you're going to use a zafu. There's no magic about using a zafu. Okay. The point is to have a stable, upright posture that contributes to an alert mind that you can hold for a while. Okay. So, if you, so this is how to use a zafu. And if you need to elevate it a little bit, Get another Zafu and put it under your butt. Okay? So that you can really feel this upright, stable, alert posture. Okay? If you're using a bench, that's actually a little easier. Because the bench is tilted a bit. Your legs are under you. The pelvis is naturally tilted and the spine is naturally erect. Okay? If you're using a chair... Sit out on the front edge with your feet on the floor. That's what will give you the tilt in the, in the spine and keep the back alert. Or get your butt snug up against the back. And that will just tilt the pelvis just a bit and, and allow you to keep that long spine. Otherwise, your body's going to collapse and it affects your mind. 
And imagine carrying that posture throughout the day. Okay? So that our practice on the cushion and off the cushion needs to be connected. What we're doing on the cushion is what we're doing off the cushion, only the form of the practice is different. That make sense? If whatever you're doing on the cushion has no relevance to the rest of your life, in some ways you're wasting your time. Is there anybody who spends more time on the cushion than off the cushion? Raise their hand, please. Now, nah, right. Okay. So the, 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 our formal practice is the template for the rest of our life. And so they inform each other. The way we work with mind states on the cushion needs to have relevance to how we work with mind states off the cushion. How we work with reactivity, with physical discomfort, needs to be this, you know, needs to have some connection with what happens in our life off the cushion, because I can guarantee you that everything we experience off the cushion will come up on the cushion. Right? The, the so-called hindrances. I've come to dislike that word, but Anybody not get bored off the cushion? Right. Boredom is pretty easy to notice on the cushion. Anybody get restless off the cushion or just on the cushion or vice versa, right? You have, I don't like this kinds of reactions on and off the cushion, right? So again, how we work with this stuff on and off the cushion is what really makes our life a life of practice. Um, I had no intention of starting my talk this way. Uh, <clears throat> so what I wanted to talk about was uh, the title is Finding Stillness in Our Practice and in Our Life. Well, they're the same thing, so... Um, it's a misnomer because stillness can't be found. Anybody take a wild guess as to why that's the case? Because as long as you're searching, as long as you're seeking, you're moving. And you can never be still while you're trying to get a hold of something. So there's a difference between being still and being stillness. Just as there's a difference between being silent and being silence. They codepend on each other. But we don't obtain or earn or get silence or stillness. There's in most, um, in most indigenous hunting cultures, there's something called still hunting. Some of you may be familiar with it. The hunter goes out into an area where they, you know, have some sense that there will be the kind of game that they're looking for. Uh, and they'll go out and they will sit down. And they'll wait. And they won't move. And they may wait for days. They start still. But they become the same kind of stillness 
that the underbrush has, that the trees have, that the grass has, that the wind has. And what they find is the animals find them. They've created a condition whereby in the stillness, as stillness, what they're looking for comes to them. That's one of the reasons in these particular kinds of cultures they have a ritual of gratitude and thanksgiving when they make a kill. So stillness is the same thing. We have to be still and then stillness will find us. So how do we do that? It's really simple, and it's one of the things that nobody likes to hear. Well, that's not true. Most people don't like to hear. you got to sit down and not move. There's a, there's a book uh, by Jack Cornfield that was at one point called Living Buddhist Masters. I'm guessing that he's probably retitled it if it's being published because they're all dead. Um, there was a woman that he writes about in there in Thailand. Um, I think she's the only woman in the book, actually, uh, which tells you a lot about the state of Dharma practice in Thailand at the time. Um, and people would come to her, and she would say, take a seat, make yourself as comfortable as you can. You can lie down, you can lounge, you can you know, stand on your head if that's what's comfy for you. Are you comfortable? I am. Then don't move. And she'd wait. And, you know, anywhere between three seconds and a few minutes, you get this. She'd say, why did you move? said, why did you move? And you might wiggle your index finger. Why did you move? What she's wanting people to look at is the fact that most of the, almost all of that kind of movement is driven by our desire to get away from discomfort. Who, who really would prefer discomfort to comfort? Right? Yeah, no hands. Nobody. Who's ever able to find, been able to find a condition or set of conditions where comfort doesn't change to something else that's not so comfy? Right? Comfort, discomfort. This is one of the gifts of being in a human body. Right? And that urge to get away from being uncomfortable is what drives human beings to very unskillful behaviors. We get cut off in traffic. There's an adrenaline rush. The urge to get away from that comes out as, fuck you! Most of us would not call that exactly skillful. And almost all of us who've had a, a similar reaction notice that that drives us. There's not, the, there's not the encounter, the reflex jerks, 
And then I say, oh, well, wait a minute. Let me just take a pause here before, you know, I act out this. It's just a very quick sequence of stimulus response reaction. The way we learn to live in the world with less reactivity is to start with this on our cushion. We find that we're continuously trying to get away from our own life. Our life in a given moment would be experienced as uncomfortable, and we want to get rid of that. The Buddha called that aversion. We want it to be different. That's desire. Grasping. Or, God, I had this great sitting yesterday and, you know, it was calm and clear. And why am I not getting that today? You know, how many times do we hear people say, you know, my mind was all over the place. There was restlessness. I was uncomfortable. It was a lousy sitting. It's an interesting story for your life and the life that you're experiencing unfolding during your sitting. An utter rejection of my life in that moment. Uh, The Buddha called that suffering. There's a little sermon uh, called the Fire Sermon where the Buddha kind of goes on and, and... you know, it's this. all this stuff was written down centuries after, so who knows who said what. But the wisdom in the teaching is quite simple and direct. It says, everything is on fire. On fire with what? Greed, aversion, confusion. Everything. I don't want it this way, I want it that way. I don't like this, I want to get rid of that and have this. And if we look at our lives, our lives are filled with that. Are we ever satisfied living that way? I mean, deeply in our hearts, ever really satisfied? Are we ever really still? If we're always trying to get away from ourselves... (laughs) it would seem to be, you know, pretty obvious that there's no happiness to be found because we're trying to control something that's uncontrollable. Like none of us can predict the next sensation that's going to come to our bodies or the next thought that's going to come to our minds. I certainly can't predict the next word that's going to come out of my mouth, which is a little scary sometimes. Um, And yet there's this urge to try and control all this rather than learn from it. Rather than really sitting still with discomfort and noticing exactly what's happening. Noticing that the story I tell about that discomfort is probably making it worse. And that any story I tell about it is not true in terms of what actually is happening. Because it makes a thing out of our experience. 
But if we really look and stay with whatever discomfort or comfort we have, it's dynamic. It's moving all the time. There ain't no thing there. So it begins to reveal itself. And we develop this deep capacity over time to be with our life as it is. Out of that emerges a certain kind of wisdom. Like if my back is screaming at me, it's probably wise to move. I've got a crushed nerve in my hip. And I have to be a little careful about how long I sit without giving that a little pressure relief. And when I do, basically, I can't do it here, but if I'm on a bench or a cushion, I just lift my butt just about that far off the cushion. I know exactly what I'm doing. And I know just the right amount of relief to give it where I can then release that. If we're not staying with what's actually happening, we don't know when it's wise to move or compassionate to move. And we don't know how much is enough. I mean, is is there anyone in this room that doesn't over-scratch an itch? Right? I mean, anybody who doesn't eat unwisely or, you know, drink unwisely or exercise unwisely or play with their electronics unwisely or, you know, of course, we, I mean, it's a human condition. And it's one of the reasons the world is in the kind of mess it's in. We're called to a different way of living. We're called to a life that says, stay, learn to stay with the life you are and learn to live wisely from that by being in relationship with your own life, not continuously trying to reactively get away from it. It's not easy. And it doesn't come overnight. It takes real dedication and a sangha to hold us. It takes teachers to hold us to this practice because very few people will really hold to this practice without some help. The mind is really slippery and will look for all kinds of ways to avoid itself. And if I take myself for my teacher, you know that saying as a, 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 a doctor who treats himself has a fool for a patient? This work can only happen in relationship. And it can only happen with a certain steadiness over time. There was one teacher, I think this is a little extreme, that said, you know, I have seven years of dedicated practice is about a good introduction to this. I don't think we need seven years to begin to taste the fruits of this practice. But it's really countercultural. You know, these practices were developed in, in cultures and times that were very, very different from ours. 
you know, that they to tell someone, you know, a thousand years ago to attend to their breath was not that big a deal. Ask somebody to attend to their breath, you know, with all the high level of stimulation that's going on. One, it's a bit of a miracle if they can even find their breath. Seriously. And two, the waves of boredom and restlessness that come up staying with something that is so simple and yet so critical. I mean, we can go for several days, days and days without food, a few days without water. Mm, what, a couple of minutes without breath, maybe? And we say, eh, it's boring. The breath is boring. Interesting story, isn't it? To get away from what's coming up by being with such a simple, crucial aspect of being alive. So what I want to do is I want us, I want us to sit for, yeah. 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes maybe. And what I want you to do, it, let me ask, is there anybody who will injure themselves? And I'm, this is a serious question. If you sit still and don't move for 15 minutes. Because if there is and you don't want to raise your hand, move wisely, okay, and take care of yourself. For the rest of us, I'll let you know when 15 minutes is up. Notice even the, the urge to move the pinky finger or wiggle the toe, okay? See if you can notice what's going on around that. So, sit up, take your posture. Let your eyes be closed or slightly open, whichever is most comfortable for you. Let the breath find its own natural rhythm. And sit still. So watch that movement. So why are you moving?
Oh, there it is. Watch it. So see if you can catch what's happening right before the movement. Pay attention to that.
So the next time you feel the urge to move, do not move and give your full attention to that urge. Have some interest in that. Rather than trying to get away from it, try to get acquainted with it. So all those little moves, are they really necessary? And again, without moving, uh, bring your attention to your face. And if there's any tension there in the jaws or the temples, the throat, just let that go. And while keeping your upright posture, do the same with your neck shoulders, on down through your upper torso, your arms and legs.
sometimes when we sit in this way with the vow to remain unmoving as the life we are, uh, some physical or mental tension can arise. That's extra and unnecessary. That can simply be noticed, and in the noticing, maybe a bit of relaxing. So, get in your most comfortable position and feel free to move. So, did anybody feel annoyance coming up with my uh, continuously pointing out the movements? <laughs> of course not, right? <laughs> uh, if I would have been on the receiving end of this, I would have felt some annoyance too, I suspect. Um, it's a challenging practice, right? So... I'd just be interested to hear what your experiences were. I mean, the, the, we didn't sit, but like 15, barely 15 minutes. Um, and it was a very different room um, than, the, than the longer sitting earlier uh, before this. Um, so, Wingo Popcorn style. Yeah. I noticed two interesting things. Um, mm. The reason we use this microphone is so that everybody in the room can hear. So when you get it, please hold it like an ice cream cone. But that's where the analogy stops, right? <laughs> you got to be careful with those, you know, it's, it's a hot day. <laughs> so I noticed two interesting things. The first um, speaks to what you said about having a sangha and a teacher to hold your practice. Mm. I've tried to do this before. It was much easier in this setting. Yeah. I mean, it was still hard. Yeah. But it was much easier than when I do try to do that alone. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, the second thing is that um, I feel like for the most part, I didn't move. Mm -hmm. And what happened is the urge, the, the unpleasantness um, of the sensations and therefore the urge to move was uh, uh, strong at the beginning, but then they... Uh, it subsided. The sensations mm. were still there, but like the unpleasant quality of them and hence the urge to move mm -hmm. uh, subsided a lot. So it was much easier yeah. as the time progressed. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I never tried this before. It was uh -huh. very different. I really liked it. Um, mm. But I didn't feel still, I, even though I didn't move. Right. I was so focused on not moving yeah. that, it, that that sort of took on a life of its own. Yeah, that's why I did that little bit of relaxation piece right at the end. You know, I think that we can get so involved, and then it's perfectly natural. I mean, it's something that's new, right? And so uh, it gets it takes us out of our uh, out of our usual balance. 
you know, out of our sort of comfort balance. And that is, as if you continue to practice with this, you'll find that it, it eases up for you. The, the other thing that I liked was that um, I found myself getting in, impatient with it and mm -hmm. wishing that it was over, mm -hmm. but then focusing on that feeling. Yeah, great. And, and it dissipated. Once yeah, that. yeah. See, that's one of the, that's, that's what we call insight. You know, it's seeing into the impermanent nature of things. And as soon as we engage the mind with a sensation and, and tell ourselves a story about it or label it, we've made it a thing. Follow that? That the, that the implication of, oh, this is pain or this is whatever, it makes it an object. And we don't see it's moving. In this practice, we learn to trust based on our experience. Not blind trust, but based on our experience. That this is all moving. And if we're able to stay with it, we move in, in a, we move as that. And without the constant struggle to get rid of it, we become still as the, as, as that. There's stillness in movement. Which is really the highest, I mean, highest, sorry. It's, for me, it's a bit of a gold standard for practice. Can we have practice in movement? You know, I mean, I'm sorry, can we have stillness in movement? You know, can, can we have that centered, balanced beingness? in the ever-changing ebb and flow of our life. And this is one way to begin to touch that. So, thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.